Since the dawning of time, when man first made grunts and carried clubs, people have sought out the perfect podcast. Well, this isn't it. But what we like in quality, we certainly make up for in having a good time. So grab your dog, settle in, and get your listening snacks ready, because it's time to hear the fat man rant. There's no telling what he'll say, and there's a 10% chance that some of it might even be true. From telling stories to railing against anything and everything that upsets him. Coming to you from a secluded closet deep within Morlock Manor in the prestigious Wombat Estate subdivision, the Fat Man rants tonight. Alright, alright. Glad we're all here tonight. Saturday night, Saturday, September the 5th. Hopefully the first day of your three-day long Labor Day weekend. Now, I know what some of you did. You took Thursday and or Friday off to stretch it into a four or five day weekend. Well, you know what? I applaud you. I applaud you. Carry on. We probably need it here in 2020. If we've ever needed a long weekend towards the latter part of the year, it's probably now. So, thank you for coming in, stopping by, and tuning in. Uh, got a long show for you tonight. Uh, I'm going to try to do, uh, try to actually kill three birds with one stone, so to speak. Uh, going to take care of two, uh, listener mails, and I'm going to, uh, do something I, uh, said I'd never do. You know, as they always say never, you know, never say never, but in this case I had to relent and do it. Um, like I said, got a long show, but hey, it's, it's a long weekend. You guys have a little more time. So that being said, probably going to go ahead and uh, get right into it. We've got some segments, some of our normal recurring segments, and then we've got uh, our main topic. And the main topic tonight's going to be a little bit longer than uh, I had planned. Um, not sure how long the show's going to turn out to be. I haven't even started the edit process. But uh, either way, it's probably going to come close to or over an hour or so might set some time aside. Uh, like I said in the introduction, get your listening snacks ready because uh, we're going to go ahead and get started on that. So kick back and enjoy. And uh, again, I hope you're having a great weekend thus far and hopefully I can enhance that. Somebody was getting a little work out there, taking it to that anvil. Uh, you might say they were uh, laboring away. I know that's a horrible segue, but it does lead us into this segment where I'm going to talk a little bit about Labor Day. Kind of give you some tips and facts about Labor Day. And I'm uh, going to let you know it's not something that originated here in the U.S. Actually, it originated in Canada. 1872 in Toronto. Um, it originally it began as a demonstration demanding rights for the workers. Um, that was in 1872, and then 10 years later in 1882 is when we first saw it make a presence here in the United States. Uh, first U.S. Labor Day was celebrated on Tuesday, September 5th, 1882 in New York City. It was planned by the Central Labor Union. 
the Labor Day parade of about 10,000 workers who took unpaid leave and marched from City Hall past Union Square uptown to 42nd Street and ended in Wendell's Elm Park at 92nd Street and 9th Avenue for a concert, speeches, and a picnic. Oregon was actually the first state to make Labor Day a holiday and that was in 1887, some five years later. Now on June 28, 1894, Congress passed an act making the first Monday in September of each year a legal holiday in the District of Columbia and the Territories. And what we're celebrating is the contributions and the achievements of the 155 million men and women who are in the U.S. workforce. Now I don't know what date this, uh, they get that number from, what year that was, but uh, that's what they're quoting here. In the late 1800s, the average American worked 12-hour days and seven days a week to eke out a basic living. Children as young as five to six years old worked in factories and mines. Uh, the year in which the eight-hour day was finally established was in 1916 with the passage of the Adamson Act. This was the first federal law regarding hours of working in hours of workers in private companies. Traditionally, people did not wear white or seersucker clothes after Labor Day, as it is unofficially marked the end of summer. Uh, the football season often starts on or around Labor Day, with many teams playing their first game of the year during the Labor Day weekend. And the last fact I'm going to give you about Labor Day is Labor Day is viewed as the unofficial last day of vacation before the start of the new school year. Uh, stated differently, it's back to school kickoff, if that's the way you like to look at it. So those are some facts about uh, Labor Day. Um, I always thought it was, well, I guess it was kind of uh, organized by the unions. Um, labor unions, they're just like anything else. They've got their benefits and they've certainly got their detriments. I mean, I think back then, in, the, in those days we just talked about prior to 1916, and going back, you know, further for probably three or four hundred years, yeah, they probably were a necessity because, you know, people would just work each other to death if they could because they knew that they, you know, had no other alternate means of obtaining, you know, wages or food or anything. And, but now, in modern times, I don't think they're such the necessity that they once were then. I can see in certain industries particularly industries that are heavily reliant on safety checks and things like that, like mining, construction, things like that where the union would occasionally, you know, have need to bring in somebody to survey the job site, make sure that it was safe and things like that. Um, I've heard a lot of other, I've heard some horror stories about unions. I've heard, you know, people that definitely should not have maintained their job were kept on because their union rep would, you know, find a way to make sure that they remained employable, even though they were a horrible, horrible employee, guilty of, you know, abuse, guilty of everything you can imagine, embezzlement, you name it, but some way, somehow, that union rep would keep them on. So, I don't know. Unions, definitely, definitely something we needed in the past. 
I think now we probably only need them in, in certain industries, like I said, industries that are, you know, real heavily safety oriented. I think they have a place there. But, you know, it's just like anything else. You have to take the good with the bad and the bad with the good and all that. So that's pretty much all I've got to tell you about uh, Labor Day. I hope you guys have a great one. Hope you cooked out and went to the lake or did something fun. Uh, well, I mean, I know you're doing something fun. You're listening to this podcast. I mean, you know, really, can can you get much better? I mean, can you ask for something more enjoyable? Yeah, probably. But either way, at least you're listening to it right now. So, like I said, enjoy your weekend. And uh, remember, what was once Monday is now Tuesday. All right. Right now we've got the Parade of Idiots. Uh, normally I just bring you one stupid person, but today I'm going to bring you several. Uh, hope you'll enjoy these. Uh, authorities in Westport, Connecticut charged Halfdan Prawl, age 35, with using a chainsaw to carve his initials into the barroom floor of the Viva Zapata restaurant. Prawl explained that he thought the restaurant was still owned by a friend of his who he believed would have found the stunt amusing. Yeah, you might want to check your friends, see what they're up to business-wise, because, yeah. Um, After three members of the People's Unlimited group, a group that believes its members can live forever simply by just willing it, died. Spokesperson Burl Gregory defended the group's credibility by explaining that the three deceased members just didn't believe strong enough. Uh, In St. James, Minnesota, dairy farmer Herbert Sanders, 64, was charged with swindling terminally ill people by injecting his cows with their blood and selling them the cow's milk, explaining that the antibodies in the milk would cure AIDS, cancer, and diabetes. Wanton County authorities said people were paying $35 a bottle for milk. Then Sanders eventually got the smart idea to just sell them the whole cow for $2,500 each. James Scott, 24, of Fowler, Illinois, was sentenced to life in prison for sabotaging a levee on the Mississippi River during the 1993 flood. Noting that the breach submerged 14,000 acres of farmland, Prosecutors says Scott told friends that he moved some sandbags to flood an area so that his wife could not return from her job on the Missouri side because he wanted to have affairs and party. And that's your parade of idiots for today. Uh, I'll have more for you coming up in the future. Uh, I've found an unlimited source of them. And so, yeah, I look forward to that. Each, Each show will have a different parade of fools. Well, that music right there tells me that it's time for my favorite segment of the show, Today in History. Now, if you'll notice, we don't have this segment every show, and there's reason for that. Um, Whatever day I decide to record and actually post this up, some days, sometimes, it's, it's a day when just wasn't much happening in history. So, anything that is listed is really 
irrelevant and not anything that anyone would be interested in. Not even, you know, the most uh, loyal history buff. They wouldn't even be interested in it. And also I've decided I'm not going to go back anytime before 1800 because unless it's just something super important like, you know, 1066 when William the Conqueror comes over or, you know, 1215 when they signed the Magna Carta, something like that. Unless it's something, you know, really important, though, I'm not going back any further than 1800s. So, uh, but today's going to be kind of a longer uh, today in history. We've got several items. Um, normally, I don't mention sports history, but there are a couple items in here that are of interest uh, in the sporting world. Um, so, that being said, let's go ahead and start with this date in history in 1836. And that was Sam Houston is elected president of the Republic of Texas. And then in 1864, British, French, and Dutch fleets attacked Japan in the Shimonoseki Straits. Okay, yeah, don't hold me on the pronunciation of that. Uh, I'll never be good with foreign terms or locations. Uh, we, we just got to look past that. It's, it's just something that's never going to happen. I'll give it one more shot. Um, Shimonseki, Shimonseki Straits, and that's that's what we're going to go with. Again, that was 1864. British, French, and Dutch fleets attacked Japan in the Shimonoseki Straits. Now, that's going to be important here in a little bit that ties in with something else that I'll kind of touch on. And, like I talked about earlier, on this date in 1882, uh, 10,000 workers march in the first Labor Day parade in New York City. In 1885, and we've become a slave to it ever since, in 1885, the first gasoline pump is delivered to a gasoline dealer in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And also along the lines of gas, but a different kind, um, in 1887, a gas lamp at the Royal Theater in Exeter catches fire, killing about 200 people. And um, in 1901, the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues form, which I guess is kind of a predecessor to the uh, Major League Baseball. 1905, 50 prominent men meet in Sydney, Australia Hotel to fund the National Defense League, fueled by fear of Japan after its victory over Russia. Now, if you'll remember, I talked about in 1864 the Brit British, French, and Dutch, you know, came together to uh, attack Japan. So, in those days, particularly in the extreme northern Atlantic, um, Japan was somebody to be reckoned with. I mean, Japan and Russia have had so many, so many wars and skirmishes. skirmishes. It's just, yeah, it's tons of them. But that was in 1905 that uh, 50 prominent people got together. It doesn't say what nations they were from or who they were representing, but they said, "Hey, you know, we got to uh, we we, we got to put Japan in check because they they defeated Russia." And then one year later, and here's something of interest in the sports world. One year later, in 1906, St. Louis University quarterback Bradbury Robinson throws the first legal forward pass in the history of American football for a touchdown to Jake Schneider at Carroll College, Waukesha, Wisconsin. St. Louis wins 22 to nothing. 
So the first pass ever thrown was completed for a touchdown. Now it doesn't say how far the pass was, but you gotta guess it's probably because it just caught the other team so off guard that they they were like, hey, wait, wait, what's he doing? And they're like, yeah, it's legal. So that was 1906. In 1907, uh, King Edward VII of Great Britain meets with Russia's foreign minister, Alexander Izvolsky, in an attempt to strengthen Russia's relationship with Britain. Again, everybody's forming, this is all pre-World War I, everybody's forming all these packs and everything because, well, they know something's going to be coming down the pike. So, then in 1914, when we near the uh, outbreak of World War I, Great Britain, France, and Belgium, I'm sorry, Great Britain, France, Belgium, and Russia signed the Pact of London, thus kind of, you know, making themselves say, hey, we're going to have each other's back during World War I. And then in 1915, just a year later, uh, Tsar Nicholas II, uh, he was distressed by the uh, increasing Russian losses. So he assumes personal command of the nation's military forces. Uh, it was a symbolic act, but it was devastating for his leadership. And in 1918, which I wanted to touch on because, uh, you know, 1918 was the year of the uh, Spanish flu and, you know, kind of similar to what we're looking at now. But in 1918, uh, due to World War I and probably that flu wasn't helping, uh, the 15th World Series, they actually held it a month early. They didn't delay it. Uh, they had it early, so that's just, you know, something to kind of coincide with what's going on in our times about all the sports schedules being askew. And in 1939, FDR declares U.S. neutrality at the start of World War II in Europe. And then in 1944, this is something that, uh, you know, kind of serves them right. Um, 1944, we had what we call Mad Tuesday. And that was when 65,000 Dutch Nazi collaborators flee to Germany. I knew they had problems with collaborators, but I didn't know 65,000. Because at that time, Holland, the Netherlands, whatever you want to call it, really didn't have a huge population. So if you're talking about 65,000 people, that's a pretty decent chunk of the population, I would think. I don't know what percentage, but more than you would think, though. And in uh, 1944, again, we're talking about strategic alliances. Uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, uh, they signed the uh, uh, Unity Treaty, basically creating Benelux, which is, you know, short for Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. So that was created on this date in 44. And to make some sports fans uh, my age and a little bit older feel really old. Um, September 5th, 1946, Joe Garagiola plays his first Major League Baseball game. And then in 57, for you literary fans and uh, kind of free spirits, uh, Jack Kerouac uh, releases On the Road. It's published by the Viking Press in New York. And that was 1957. And uh, something I find interesting, in 1961, uh, JFK signed a law against hijacking and actually made it carry the death penalty. He made it a federal crime. 
So carried the death penalty. Now, I think in 76, I don't know. I'm, yeah, there are still, you know, certain uh, federal crimes that carry a death penalty. I mean, look at Timothy McVeigh. Um, and something that'll make some of us feel older. Um, talking about this being the Memorial, I'm sorry, the Labor Day weekend. Um, I always associated Labor Day weekend with two things. U.S. Open Tennis and the Jerry Lewis Muscular Dystrophy Telethon. And it was on September 5th of 1966 that we had the first muscular dystrophy telethon. Te telethon. Let's get it out there. Um, it raised $1 million. And also, if any of you about my age and a little older will remember 1972, the Munich Olympics, that was where we had 11 Israeli athletes taken hostage and killed by the Palestinian Black September group. And that was on this date, September 5th, 1972. I think that's also the Olympics where uh, Mark Spitz won seven gold medals, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 72 when he did that. And in 79, um, for any of you Manson family followers, uh, in 79, I'm sorry, uh, let's see, I'm missing, uh, let's see, it was 75, I'm sorry, 75. In 75, uh, that's when Lynette Squeaky Fromm tried to assassinate uh, President Gerald Ford out in Sacramento. So, yeah, if we got any of you uh, Manson family followers out there, just note that. Um, in 76, uh, Jim Henson, The Muppet Show, premiered on television. Uh, Mia Farrow was the first guest star. So that was 76. We've got Jim Henson and The Muppet Show. Uh, in 78 is when they had, uh, it, it began the uh, Camp David Treaty with uh, Sadat, Menachem Begin, and Jimmy Carter all out at Camp David. It was an Arab Israeli peace deal. I'm sorry, Egypt and Israeli peace offer at uh, Camp David. Um, in 89, Deborah Norville became the uh, news anchor of the Today Show. Uh, in 1991, uh, Nelson Mandela is chosen as president of the African National Congress. And of course now, whenever we hear Mandela, we think about the Mandela effect. Personally, I think they're just getting Mandela confused with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. They're both from South Africa. They were both uh, in the spotlight, in the news at the same time. So whenever people talk about the Mandela effect and swearing that they saw his, uh, saw his funeral on TV and everything, I think they're probably just getting him confused with Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, but, you know, nobody's ever really asked me about that. And nothing noteworthy happened really until 2019. And, well, this isn't really noteworthy, but I'll, I'll throw this out there for any of the... Uh, cryptoid fans, uh, a new theory arises regarding the Loch Ness Monster that it might be a giant eel, because they did DNA studies and they found that there were no DNA uh, markers of sturgeon or plesiosaur found in the entire lake. So they had to shift their focus and think it was an eel. So that's all I've got for you for today on uh, this date in history. I tell you what, tomorrow it's going to be a new day. It's going to be September 6th. I've got a challenge for you all. I want one of you to go out and do something newsworthy or noteworthy 
to be in something impressionable so that, you know, five years from now, I'll be able to give the uh, On This Day in History, talking about September 6th, and say, I happen to know this person. They did such and such. So go out, make your mark on history, achieve something special and great, and uh, like I said, I, I, I expect nothing less of you. So, like I said, two or three of you go out and make your mark on history, and that's all we've got for this date in history. Alright, looks like September 5th, uh, quite a day in history. So now we're going to move on to our uh, main topic of the uh, show. And it's something that, uh, uh, like I said, it's driven by uh, listener mail. So I want to take a moment or two here to preface this portion of the show to say that I never really wanted to do an episode on Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, whatever you want to call them. I've always felt that there are already way too many podcasts out there devoted to nothing but Bigfoot, UFOs, and other realms of the paranormal, or what they call 40 and topics. And if you if you want to check those podcasts out, I can highly recommend the best one out there as being Expanded Perspectives, hosted by Kyle Filson and Cam Hale. Uh, I'm not a fan of the podcast Sad Squatch Chronicles, however... I do encourage all of you, if you have an hour or so to kill, go to SasquatchChronicles.com and listen to episode 420. You all have got to listen to this one. Um, Whether you like Bigfoot stuff or not, this one is just hilarious. And uh, you'll be along the same lines with me. I don't think it's just a coincidence that this was episode 420. But anyway, back on point. Uh, One thing I will always try to do is appease my listeners especially if they took the time to send in a request via listener mail. So to honor my loyal listeners, I'm going to break my own decree, and I'll go ahead and give you folks a show about Bigfoot and the closely related Rock Apes of Vietnam. I actually received the first request before I even began the podcast. I asked for suggestions. I was going to do a mock show just so that I could get the hang of the recording and editing software. Well, one person, a Vietnam veteran themselves, suggested that I do an episode about the rock apes of Vietnam. At first, I ruled it out because, like I said, I I don't do big stuff. But then I had another person suggest a uh, Bigfoot-centered episode. So I relented. Now, I also want to take another moment to state the following. I do not believe in Bigfoot. I've always been interested in the subject ever since I was a kid and saw the legend of Boggy Creek. Like I said, I find the whole concept interesting, yet I personally I don't believe in it's in their existence. Because surely by now, with all the technology we have, and the satellites, and the drones, and the FLIR-equipped helicopters, we would have found a live or dead specimen for study and definitive proof. So I'm firmly of the position that until I see one dead or see one in a zoo, I'm going to stick with my hypothesis that they don't exist. And later on, once I'm into the main part of the story, I'll further elaborate other reasons why I don't believe they exist. Uh, People often ask, if you don't believe in them, then why do you still read and listen to podcasts about them? And that answer is uh, pretty simple. Uh, When I was a kid, I used to watch pro wrestling, even though I knew it was fake. Sorry, Rick. Um, 
I still enjoyed watching it. Same thing now and as an adult when it comes to the Marvel movies. I know they're not real, but, you know, it doesn't stop me from enjoying them and, you know, delving into the way that they're all interconnected. So just because I enjoy a subject, it doesn't mean that I believe in its existence. Now, I will say on a personal note, I think it would be interesting to be proven wrong on the matter and have someone capture a live specimen that would be, you know, available for display after it was authenticated as being an entirely, you know, heretofore unknown species. I'd happily admit that I'd been wrong in my denial all these years, but thus far that hasn't happened, and I doubt it ever will. So I want to talk a little bit about the rock apes of Vietnam first. Um, kind of talk about uh, the context of the article. And uh, it wasn't until 1965 that Lyndon Johnson sent in actual fighting troops to Vietnam as a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident on September, I'm sorry, on August 2nd. Now, I know we had advisors there as early as the middle 50s, but again, these dates are only for the context of this article, just to establish a little bit of a timeline. So, yeah, it wasn't until, I want you to think, again, purely for the sake of this article, think of the Vietnam War as being an actual shooting war from 65 to 75 again, just for the purposes of this article. Uh, you can always read up more on the war in general, and I suggest you do, because in the course of studying this subject for this particular uh, episode, I learned a lot of things I didn't know. Um, and by the way, if you think our country is divided now, read about the days of peace and love back in the 60s. But anyway, on to the rock apes. Uh, the elusive rock apes are said to be six to six and a half feet tall and are covered with long, stringy red hair. Sound familiar? Uh, they're said to be somewhat thin and quite muscular, and they're said to have tails, which makes them somewhat different from the descriptions of the North American Bigfoot. Because no one has ever reported that uh, Bigfoot here in the U.S. allegedly has a tail. Uh, they're also said to be, you know, far more aggressive than their U.S. counterpart. So, when did humans first start seeing these beasts? Talking about the rock apes. Uh, it seems that humans first reported having encountered these beings uh, in about 1820. At least that was the first report of we had here in the Western world. The first report we had in the Western world has. Um... In 1820, there was a Jesuit missionary who told a French sea captain by the name of El Rey uh, the story of how he had encountered a troop of wild men which were covered in hair and sported tails. Now, I want to note something here. The indigenous people of Vietnam referred to them as a tribe or race of people, much like the early Native Americans did hundreds of years ago here in North America. The Native Americans, they didn't refer to them as apes because, well, I mean, the Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest had no knowledge of apes or other primates, as, you know, there are none in the region. So they logically assumed they were a strange tribe or group of wild people. But the people of Vietnam, you know, they'd be pretty well versed with several different kinds of monkeys and gibbons, as, you know, they're pretty prolific over there. Yet the rock apes were almost always described as wild people 
rather than apes or monkeys. So I just thought that was kind of curious. Um, let's get on with the history of these earlier sightings before we move on into the 60s. It um, seems that in 1830, Father Francois Isidore Gogling, again, like I told you earlier, I'm horrible with uh, foreign pronunciations. We'll just call him Father Izzy. Um, he also recorded incidents of these beings in the highlands of Cambodia, which, of course, is adjacent to Vietnam. But everyone just regarded them as superstition and folklore until 1895. Well, let me say, when I say everyone, I mean the Western world. The, the indigenous people of Vietnam and Cambodia, they freely admit they're there. Um, you know, they have no, no problem with their acceptance. When I say we, I mean the Western world. But uh, anyway, in 1895, a recognized anthropologist by the name of Paul Donjoy took notice and he mounted an expedition to seek out these questionable creatures. He claims that he had observed a local group of the subjects and he says he you know, observed them at length. He even published a paper on his studies, but it was ridiculed as fantasy. In fact, highly placed individuals in the French government basically told him to cease and desist. You know, he said, they basically said, you're making the whole country and yourself look kind of backwards. So needless to say, his findings were severely discredited. Then in 1912, an accomplished explorer by the name of Henry Mate, I'm going to spell it for you guys and you'll see that I'm really botching the uh, pronunciation. Last name is M-A-I-T-R-E, so Mate, Maitre, I don't know. Anyway, he published a book which spoke of these hairy hominids. Uh, residing in Vietnam's Central Highlands, and he described them exactly as everyone else did, complete with the tail. And although Mate described them as being less than five feet tall in most cases, countless other explorers to the region, you know, they consistently reported them throughout the 20s. So let's go ahead and jump up to Vietnam. We're talking in the 60s. Um, war visited the land of these alleged rock apes. I want to address one thing here that none of the articles mentioned, and that was the fact that uh, Operation Ranch Hand, which occurred in Vietnam from 1961 through 1971, saw the U.S. spray millions of gallons of defoliant known as Agent Orange. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the term, especially uh, some of you older folks like myself and veterans. I'm sure veterans are familiar with it. Anyway, they sprayed millions of gallons of this defoliant across the region because it was believed that if the forests were void of leaves and other foliage, the enemy, namely the Viet Cong, would no longer be able to use the dense jungle as camouflage and shelter. They'd be more out in the open, so to speak. Now, I'm wondering if these beasts were flushed from their original habitat because of the defoliant, you know, possibly disrupting their food chain and destroying their habitat. You know, if you take away all the leaves, you take away the bugs and the stuff that eats leaves and grass, which might be part of their food chain. You know, that's that's just a personal thought I developed along the way. Again, we have no real evidence to even indicate that these things exist. So that was just something, you know, I was just kind of spitballing and thinking about there. There are two very famous incidents in which U.S. armed forces encountered these rock apes. Now, the first of which occurred in 66 
in which the 3rd Marines erected a base about 20 miles northwest of Da Nang on the heavily forested hill known as Dong Din. One night, the camp was attacked by several of these rock apes, and they're so named because they're prolific rock throwers, not because they live in a rocky area like any kind of escarpment or anything like that. They get the name rock apes because they just as soon throw a rock at you as not, allegedly. So these beasts attacked from just just within the tree line of the area, and they're using that tree line as a form of natural cover. Uh, it's said that several Marines received uh, minor injuries from being struck with rocks. Now, says the Marines returned fire into the tree line, but there was never an account of any bodies being found the next morning when they went out to investigate. So it appears that, you know, despite probably thousands of rounds being fired into the tree line, there were no rock ape casualties. Uh, but the incident was supposedly so intense that the local military personnel started to referring uh, to Dong Din as Monkey Mountain. Now, maybe they did that in jest or, uh, you know, kind of poking fun at the people who had been there. I don't know, but they did start calling it Monkey Mountain after that. Uh, the second attack, again, you know, the most well-known attack, uh, well, actually, uh, Monkey Mountain was the most well-known attack, but this one was, you know, a close second. And this occurred some three years later in 1969, when a, p- a, patrol, from, a patrol from Company D, 1st Battalion of the 502nd Infantry Regiment, encountered what they believed to be a group of eight rock apes who assailed them with you guessed it, rocks. Um, this incident occurred on Moulton Ridge, and at first, because of the brownish coloring, the GIs at first thought they were uh, NVA, stands for North Vietnamese Army, thought they were NVA soldiers and opened fire. It said the one alpha of the ape tribe advanced while the other seven retreated into the dense jungle for cover. Now again, I can't help but ponder... If the apes brought rocks to a gunfight, and there were probably hundreds, if not thousands, of rounds fired at them by, you know, a trained kill team and all of that, how come there were no bodies obtained for documentation and evidence? Uh, was there maybe a military cover-up in which, you know, the bodies were destroyed to avoid further investigation or scrutiny? I don't know. You know, that's that's a rabbit hole for another time. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that it wasn't just the U.S. soldiers who had encounters with these beasts. Uh, It seems that all three of the combative forces in the region had brushes with these rock apes, including the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. They also tussled with these creatures. In fact, uh, the North Vietnamese Army was so plagued with them that they even uh, commissioned scientific studies and expeditions expeditions to get more information. In fact, in 1974, General Huang Min Ta organized an expedition to try to capture or at least kill one of these legendary creatures. The expedition was unsuccessful, although, you know, no hard evidence of the rock evidence of the rock apes were found. So, you know, again, we've got another investigation no evidence, no body, no, no anything. And then later on, another expedition organized by Professor Vo Ki 
of the National um, Vietnam National University was similarly unsuccessful. However, strange like strange human like but not human footprints were found in the jungle in 1970 by a professor Tran Hong Viet of Hanoi's Pedagogic University. He made casts of the footprints but you know no further evidence of the rock apes exist. So we have to figure that for the Vietnamese government to go to such extremes, there had to be something of merit to prompt them. But maybe not, because remember, the attitudes of scholarly and academic pursuits that they use are not based on the same standard or reasons that we use here in the West. So, you know, what might prompt us to investigate at a university level might not, you know, turn an, turn an eye to them and vice versa. Um, and a lot of time, one of the other kind of, uh, derisions here about the whole subject is a lot of the times the claims laid out by American GIs were simply dismissed as the effect, as the effects of, you know, a bad LSD trip or some other type of opioid usage that was said to be quite prevalent among the, uh, armed forces in Vietnam. You know, was that the case? Maybe so, maybe no. But the end result is, just like with the North American version of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, as some prefer to call them, uh, there's yet to be any definitive proof beyond blurry photos, grainy film clips, and hundreds of large depressions, which some irrefutably call footprints. Because of this, we have no concrete or even speculative answers as to if these creatures exist, and if so, what species they may fall into. So now, as promised, we'll turn our attention to the American Bigfoot. Now this creature, he, he needs no introduction. I'm sure that at some point everybody with a TV has heard of this cryptid, as things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster are often called. Either you've watched a documentary or two, maybe because you couldn't find the remote to turn it off, or if nothing else, you've probably seen Harry and the Hendersons or a commercial for Jack Link's Beef Jerky. And so, you all know the thing which I'm speaking about. He's, he's always described by witnesses as being 8 feet tall, sometimes as large as 10 feet, depending on who you ask. Um, these beings have allegedly been seen by the earliest Native Americans and have, you know, been depicted in some of the oldest cave paintings in the Pacific Northwest. So we know the legend has been around for quite some time, but again, you know, where's the tangible proof or evidence? Now, like I said... The Native American folklore has referenced these things for hundreds of years, but they really didn't come in to the collective conscience of the general public until, you know, the late 1950s, and then interest really boomed with the release of that uh, grainy film, crew, film clip shot at Bluff Creek, Colorado in 1967 by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Uh, it's probably the image that uh, immediately comes front and center when, when one hears the word Bigfoot. In fact... The alleged creature shown in the film has even been given a name. It's alleged that the suspect, subject of the film is a female because there appears to be the presence of breasts on said beastie. So they have named her Patty in homage to the late Roger Patterson who shot the film. Uh, his companion Bob Gimblin, Gimlin I'm sorry, is still alive and he still tours the country setting up tables and booths at various Bigfoot and UFO conventions throughout the U.S. and even abroad. 
yes, you heard me right, Bigfoot conventions. And naturally, there's one of the more renowned festivals held each October here in Oklahoma. But I do think this year's festival and conference were canceled due to the Rona. Now, after the release of the Patterson-Gimlin film, the U.S. went wild into a sort of Bigfoot mania. And the 70s saw a huge influx of alleged sightings. People, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, were seeing Bigfoot everywhere they turned. They saw him crossing roads, climbing ridges, skirting creek banks, and even reportedly saw him, you know, in semi-urban areas rummaging through dumpsters. Hundreds of short film documentaries were produced with the intent of cashing in on Bigfoot fever. Then in 1972, celluloid lightning struck again and that we saw the release of the cult classic The Legend of Boggy Creek. It was billed and touted as being the monster movie that is actually true. Now, I remember at age five, the parents packed me and the sister into the car one Sunday afternoon, and we went to see that movie, and we went to the old May Theater, which, uh, if I recall, is now uh, an antique store. But we went to see the movie, and I was I was hooked with intrigue. Uh, as a kid, I think most most kids were as well. And like many other Americans, I you know at the time I was five, you know, I'm believing that every tree and every shadow, you know held the Falk monster lurking in its shade, so... Yeah. But anyway, now that the Bigfoot mystique had kind of permeated the nation, sightings began to pour in all across the country. They were no longer limited to the Pacific Northwest. Virtually every state except Hawaii had sightings being reported in droves. Now remember, hardly anyone was reporting these having, you know, until... Any, you know, no one was reporting them until, you know, having seen the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film and then the sub- subsequent release of Boggy Creek. Then all of a sudden, thousands had their tales to tell each week. Um, as the reports began to flow in, it seemed that the description and conditions of the sightings seemed to change and evolve. Basically, people were reporting different variations in the creature. Um... Some had him as black, some as red, some as a light gray, some blondes, and even a few albino versions were out there. Now, not only did the color of the alleged bipedal hominid change, but so did the build and height. At this point, I should point out that every hillbilly in Arkansas and Appalachia know that when you report your Bigfoot sighting, if you use the term bipedal hominid, it makes your perceived IQ go up by 40 points, and the man from the local TV station will give you much more credence. But like I said, the descriptions of Bigfoot were so varied that uh, they decided there were basically four different variations on the, on the species. Now here's where things get kind of weird and funny. Uh, each type had appearances and characteristics different from, different from the others. So just for the sake of entertainment, I'll give you a brief rundown on each type. Uh, type 1 is the largest of them all, uh, quintessential Bigfoot's Bigfoot, measuring at 8 feet and, you know, at least six, 700 pounds. Uh, that's the type that they believe to have been captured in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Uh, they're believed to be the most docile and timid of the species in that they're always seen avoiding contact. 
And, you know, they're primarily concentrated there in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, type 2 is seen anywhere throughout the U.S., but most prominently in the South. And they're, they tend to be a little bit smaller than the Type 1, topping out at 7 feet. And uh, they're more athletic and uh, more uh, wiry, you might say. And uh, they're said to be a lot more aggressive than the Type 1. And it says they're fond, you know, said to be found, uh, you know, fond of uh, small livestock like chickens and goats and stuff. And Type 3, here's where we get off into, well, no, we left the trail of reality a long time ago. But Type 3 would get pretty bizarre here. It's pretty much a crapshoot. They're described as being often in excess of 10 feet and uh, more of a human hybrid than simply a relic hominid. Again, another term to know if the local media ever takes your sighting for the 6 p.m. news. You say you saw a relic hominid, again, they'll think you know what you're talking about. Oh, and uh, these Type 3s? Uh, they possess supernatural powers and they can communicate with you via mind control and produce low-frequency sounds that will allegedly disrupt your neurotransmitters and render you motionless whilst they, you know, proceed to attack and eat you. Uh, type 4, uh, this type appears to be a sort of ancient human in that they have a round head rather than conical like a gorilla. Uh, they're said to be, you know, a little bit leaner than a Type 1, but still strong and athletic in appearance. Uh, they're found mostly along the East Coast and New England areas. Uh, they've also been uh, reported as having used, used crude tools and uh, possibly even, you know, might be a hybrid species in which some humans contributed to the bloodline hundreds of years ago. So... Now that we've talked about the four types and the way in which popular media increases the number of sightings exponentially, let's talk a little bit about some of the characteristics of the sightings themselves. Now, I've always said that the way you can tell if someone reporting a Bigfoot sighting is lying is because their mouth's moving. Uh, thus, I give no credibility to them. I mean, they often contradict, them, contradict themselves several times during their re recounting of events. Um, for example, the first thing they'll tell you is that it was 3 a.m. in the middle of the woods and it was totally dark. All right, am I the only one who sees a problem here? If it was totally dark, how could they see the thing to begin with, let alone go on to give a detailed description about the hair color facial features, and other in-depth descriptions, yet somehow they always do. Another common contradiction that I find amusing is the person will say that it was the most terrifying moment of my life. I was scared beyond imagination. Then two sentences later they'll tell you, well, I followed the beast into the forest to get a better look at it. Now, does that make sense to you? If you just had the most terrifying encounter of your life with this eight and a half, nine foot tall beast that's four foot wide, weighs 700 pounds, you just saw him rip out a tree out of the ground, and it was the most terrifying moment of your life, are you going to chase after it to have another encounter? I doubt it. Uh, all the experts, you know, how can you be an expert on something that we don't even know exists? But anyway... 
All the experts and researchers we see on TV all say of the witnesses, well, they can't all be lying. Uh, yes, they can. I remember my Uncle Keith once uh, pointing to a guy in a cafe and saying, see that guy over there? If he ever tells you the truth, he'll come back and apologize because he sure didn't mean to. In fact, the average person tells four to six lies per day, according to detailed research by psychologists and psychiatrists. So yes, they can all be lying. In all honesty, I, I could go on talking about this subject forever, or I could shut up right now, and nothing more would be learned. Without simply rehashing the same alleged evidence, there's no new knowledge to be gained. Now those who teach logic and reasoning will say that it's completely impossible to prove a negative, meaning that you can't prove something doesn't exist, whether it's God or Bigfoot or vampires or whatever. It's simply impossible under the laws of reason to prove that something doesn't exist. So while I'm a non-believer in all things Bigfoot, I, I think it's great that there are believers and people who like to keep asking the question, what if? Because it's those type of people in general who inspire creativity and innovation. So, like I said at the beginning of this segment, I wouldn't mind at all being proven wrong if someday somebody would show up, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning banging on the doors of the Smithsonian Institute, has one of these beasts all chained up like Chewbacca in one of the movies from Star Wars. You know, I'd gladly eat crow and say I was wrong. In fact, I'll even say that I hope someone can prove me wrong and prove their existence once and for all. I'm going to leave you all with one story that I've heard on a podcast that is probably the best Bigfoot story of all time. Well, except for episode 420 on Sasquatch Chronicles. Again, SasquatchChronicles.com, episode 420. Check it out. But this story is is a, it's a really good story. Back in the... 70s during the Bigfoot craze. Uh, I'm going to say it was in Ohio or Indiana, someplace in the Midwest. There was a, a what they call a mass sighting where several people claimed to see it of a Bigfoot at an elementary school. And this elementary school, again, had tree line on one side of it and all the kids are out there at recess and everything. And, uh, oh, I need to, it's Halloween day. It's October 31st. And all the kids are out there playing. And lo and behold, here comes a Bigfoot. Coming out of the tree line, just grunting and raging. He's throwing logs. He's He's got a, like a torn chain around him like he escaped from something. He's dragging this chain and throwing logs. And all the kids, you know, just are hysteric and they run back in their rooms um, the police come out and go into the woods. They, uh, you know, even, we even hear gunshots and the police come back and say, nah, we, we, we took a couple shots, but it, it got away. You know, we, we tried, but it got away. So one of the guys that researches Bigfoot and everything, like I said, that was back in the seventies. He was going to check out another Bigfoot story. And he knew he was going to be driving by that little town. And that that mass sighting had always uh, interested him. So, And this was a very small town. So he goes to the library. And uh, this is the local library. 
And in a small town, sometimes they will have the yearbooks of the schools nearby. So he looks at the yearbook of kids that would have been in the third or fourth grade at the time of the sighting. So he writes down some names. Then he checks, gets the phone book, and sees if those people are by any chance still listed in that town. Some of them are. And so he calls them and says, you know, some of them were like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. No clue. No clue. Again. But some of them would meet with him. He'd say, you know, do you, do you remember, you know, the day everybody saw the Bigfoot? And they're like, remember it? Yes, I remember it. I've, I've, I had to go to therapy for like three years to get over it. And other people were like, yeah, I never went in the woods again. I never camped. I never fished. No, I mean, yeah, I remember it. I don't, I don't even want to talk about it, but yes, I remember it. Well, he did some checking and the principal of that little elementary school still happened to be alive, and he was well in his 80s. And so he thinks, I'm going to give the principal a call. So he gives the principal a call and asks the principal if he remembers it. And he said, well, yeah, I remember it. He said, it was it was one of the funniest things I can never remember. And he says, you know, tell me, elaborate. He said, well, it was Halloween. So me and, you know, Carl, the science teacher, <laughs> worked up a... Uh, a good prank to scare the kids. And he said, so he's asking the principal, he said, so you and this science teacher, you guys never went back and told the kids that it was a joke, that it was a prank? He said, well, no, it was Halloween. I just figured they were smart enough to know that because of it was Halloween that it was a prank. So you've had all these kids just been terrified their whole life. Just because the principal never went back and told them that it was a prank. So, that's probably my favorite Bigfoot story, again, except for the one on Sasquatch Chronicles episode 420. Now, that's pretty much wraps it up for this segment and for the uh, show in general. But, do not forget to listen to the extra bonus story at the end of the outro music. You know, kind of like the uh, Marvel bonus scene. Hope you guys have a wonderful holiday weekend. Uh, Be good. Don't drink and drive. Take care. Uh, I've really enjoyed this episode. Uh, Like I said, I knocked three things out. Uh, Please, two listener mails. And I got to say, okay, now I don't ever have to do a Bigfoot show again. So, but, you know, they say never say never. Maybe, Maybe I'll do another one. Who knows? If there's demand enough. Anyway, enjoy your weekend. Uh, enjoy the wonderful uh, exit music and stay tuned all the way because this is a pretty good bonus story.
Okay, so like last week, somebody suggested that my uh, little bonus story should be uh, just a story from my past that uh, I'm going to recount. Um, man, I don't know if I should be telling this or not. I can just see, uh, I can just see the Department of Education. Everybody, probably the governor. I can just imagine them all coming, showing up at my house or something. But I'm going to tell this story anyway. Many years ago, back in the 90s, uh, it was uh, after the event I relayed last week. I I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was out of school. Um, my, my degree was primarily meant to be a pre-law degree, and I didn't want to go to or couldn't afford law school. Wasn't sure what I was going to do, so I thought, I'll be a substitute teacher. And yeah, this lasted all of about one week, but I'll tell you the story here. So it was in uh, the Moore School District, and... Uh, about day two or three of being the substitute teacher, this was like middle school, so sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, I don't remember exactly when, um, I realized that as the teacher, these kids would pretty much believe anything you told them. And um, so one day I'm just sitting there thinking, I realized, yeah, they'll, they'll believe pretty much anything I tell them. Now, I'm not going to mess up their, you know, their core knowledge. I'm not going to give them any bad info about history or, you know, political science or math or anything like that. I'm just going to throw in an odd factoid every now and then that I just completely spawn right there off my head. So, we're sitting there and somehow, I don't even remember how I segued into it. I said, you know... Most people don't know this, but uh, and you, you couldn't really tell it because of the clothes that he wore and, and the way his suits were tailored and made, but Hitler was a bodybuilder. I mean, you know, like I said, you'd never know it. It's something he kind of kept a secret because it was just his little hobby, but Hitler was, you know, he was buff. Hitler was, you know, a world-class bodybuilder. I said, now he doesn't look like it, does he? And they're all like, no, no. No, huh? Not at all. No. So, and I, I'm thinking as I'm telling this, and I, I really, I really was thinking this. I can just see 20 years from now some dude on Jeopardy, and the question will be like, this famous Austrian bodybuilder went on to claim fame, and I can just see somebody being, let's make it a true daily double, Alec. Who is Adolf Hitler? No, no, I'm. I'm sorry, the answer we were looking for was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, you know, that's just one of the kind of wrong things I did as a substitute teacher. Um, another thing was uh, these guys, oh, this class was just totally out of hand, and I couldn't do anything to get them to shut up and calm down. They were just r basically rioting. And so I picked the biggest, toughest, meanest looking kid in the class. You know the guy in sixth grade that's like 6'2 and has a full beard? I said, what's your name? And he, I don't know. Let's say it was Johnny. I said, everybody listen up. The next one of y'all that talks, if any of y'all talk, if any of you all, you know, di disbehave in any way or anything, 
I'm writing Johnny up for detention. And Johnny's like, well, what did I do? I said, well, Johnny, now, when you get out of detention, it's up to you to find the person that puts you in detention. Not another word was said. I mean, those kids were just quiet as you could be. And I wonder why. Now, I don't know. I'll probably go to hell or jail or both for that. But that was kind of your little Marvel bonus moment. So... For better or worse, yeah, that's what I did. I, I don't know, maybe I'm a horrible person, but it was fun at the time. Nobody really got hurt over it, so I figure all's well that ends well. And so, uh, yeah, we're wrapping this up. I, I know in the original uh, original uh, post, I told you to, you know, have a good safe weekend. I want to reiterate that. Be safe. Don't drink and drive. Don't do anything stupid. Um... A lot of boating stuff happens, and we got a lot of amateur people that aren't really well-versed with boating and sailing, so if you're listening to this and you're on the seas, or be careful, and uh, be good, take care, and check back next time. I uh, should have another episode out. I'm shooting for uh, not this Monday, but the Monday after, so check back then. Y'all have fun, be good, and... Uh, Can't wait till next time.